We have a wonderful king that we'd like to study tonight, the king by the name of Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, his story begins here in Second Chronicles chapter 29. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the many examples in your word of men and women who followed you, who served you, who made it through difficult times. What an inspiration they are to us. And Lord, I would ask that we would learn from that tonight, that they would be good examples to us, and we'd replicate, we'd duplicate, Lord, what they've done. Bless this time in your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin with this king, Hezekiah. Look at verse 1 of Second Chronicles chapter 29. It says, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And notice this. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. So the southern kingdom of Judah lasted 345 years. There were 20 kings that reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah. Hezekiah is the 13th king to reign. He began to reign at the age of 25, and he reigned for 29 years. And he was a fabulous king, a great king. Hezekiah, the name means my strength is the Lord, and he lived that way. And notice in verse 2, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. That was true for his whole kingdom reign. And notice what it says even further. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Here's a king that is raised to the same level of King David. Fabulous awesome king. Second Kings chapter 18 verse 5 sums up his reign this way. Listen, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. It's very likely he was the greatest king in the southern kingdom of Judah, of course, after the split of the kingdom. Four chapters are devoted to Hezekiah right here in 2 Chronicles. Three chapters are devoted to him in 2 Kings. Four more chapters are devoted to him in the book of Isaiah. This king was great. And what made him great was this. He was a reformer. He is known in the history of Judah as the great reformer 
of the southern kingdom of Judah. He's a man who brought the kingdom of Judah back to the Lord. You see, his father was named Ahaz, and he was a wicked king. King Ahaz reigned for 16 years. He was a gross idolater. He worshipped the Baals, the Ashtoreth. He even worshipped Molech, who was worshipped with child sacrifice. Ahaz was a gross idolater, and he put idolatry up front in his kingdom. And it was under the reign of Ahaz that the entire temple system in Jerusalem was shut down completely. He went into the temple. He destroyed all the items of furniture. He literally nailed the the doors to the temple shut. He stopped all of the sacrifices in Jerusalem. He stopped all of the feast, all of the celebration, all of the Sabbath, all of that. And he eliminated the Levitical priestly work. Now, I want you to think of that. The temple system is the heart of worship for the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahaz cut the heart out of his kingdom. And as a result, everything went south for the kingdom of Judah. Economic hardship, military weakness, During the reign of Ahaz, the southern kingdom of Judah became a vassal state to the Assyrian Empire, which means they were allowed to exist as their own state as long as they paid huge taxes to the Assyrian Empire, which they did year by year. So Hezekiah inherited a mess, didn't he? When he becomes king... The kingdom of Judah is a train wreck, economic misery, military weakness, no temple service whatsoever. So he gets into office and he has all of these fires to fight, all of these issues to deal with. What did he tackle first? Where did he exert all the energy of his kingdom? We'll check this out. Look at verse 3, chapter 29. It says, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square. And he said to them, hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They've forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put on the lamp, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the Lord God of Israel. Look at verse 10. He tells the Levites, It is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. 
Year one, month one, you'll find out later, day one. First day, top of the agenda. Let's open up the temple. Let's cleanse the temple. He gets all the Levites together and he commands them, we're going to clean this place up. We're going to repair the furniture. We're going to get everything back in order. And they immediately got to work. Look at verse 17. It says, now they began to sanctify on the what day? First day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days, and on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. Then they went into King Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offerings with all its articles, the table of the showbread with all of its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified, and there they are before the altar of the Lord. In 16 days, they have repaired all the furniture. In 16 days, they have cleansed the temple. In 16 days, they have cleansed the temple courts. They say, Hezekiah, here it is. It's all done. That which wasn't functioning for 16 years was prepared and made operational in 16 days. The first 16 days of Hezekiah's reign. So they come and they show Hezekiah all the repair. And Hezekiah, first thing the next morning, very early in the morning commands the Levites and the priests to begin sacrificing to the Lord immediately, day 17. The text says that they offered seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for a sin offering for the entire kingdom. This is like a day of atonement. These offerings for the whole kingdom. They haven't kept the day of atonement in years. First thing they do. It's the sin offering. Then there are burnt offerings that are offered. 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs. Then all of the people are encouraged to bring their sacrifices to the Lord. And if you read the text, 600 bulls, 3,000 sheep were brought to the brand newly opened temple. They were sacrificed there were not enough priests to handle the work, so the Levites joined in to help butcher. And while that's all going on, Hezekiah made sure that all the Levitical musicians, the worship leaders, were in place with their cymbals and their stringed instruments. And 24-7, they're offering praise to the Lord. What a feat. Look down at the end of this chapter. Look right in the middle of verse 35. It says, so the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. 
Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. I wanted you to see that. Look how quickly people are blown away. Revival has broken out in 17 days. An entire change to the kingdom. It's happened so quickly, the people are blown away. They're like, wow, God was in this. God had prepared the hearts. Listen, if you ever set your mind to set your life in order, to get right with the Lord, maybe to set your marriage in order, your family in order, your business in order, If you determine, you know what, I'm going to set God first, I'm going to follow him, and I'm going to get to work. Listen, changes can happen really, really fast. Really, really quick. You'd be amazed. Look what God did. Well, Hezekiah doesn't stop there. He has more reform in mind. Look at verse 1 of chapter 30. It says, And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep what? The Passover to the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at the regular time, because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan. That's as far south to as far north as you can go in the land of Egypt or Israel that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. Oh, I love this. Revival has broken out in Jerusalem. And Hezekiah wants everyone in the land to come and partake. So he decides we're going to celebrate Passover. It hasn't been celebrated properly in many years, certainly not during the 16 years of Ahaz. You'll find out later that it actually hasn't been celebrated properly since the split of the kingdom over 200 years prior in 931 B.C. A Passover has not been celebrated. He wants to celebrate. And he wants to invite everyone. And so he sends runners all over the land, inviting everybody to come to the house of the Lord. It's open. We're going to celebrate Passover. The northern kingdom of Israel at this point has recently been taken captive by the Assyrian Empire. Most of them are out of the land, but there are still pockets of Jewish people living. And so he goes out and he sends invitations to them. You read in this chapter that many of them laugh and mock him to their demise. But many, many people 
do show up. And I love this. Passover is usually celebrated in the first month. They're in the second month. Hezekiah doesn't want to wait a year. So he says, we're going to do it now in the second month. And people show up. Look at verse 21 of 2 Chronicles chapter 30. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. I love verse 23. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast, what? Another seven days. And they kept it another seven days with gladness. Now picture this in your mind. Everyone shows up. Passover hasn't been celebrated like that for years. There are the people of God praying, sacrificing, singing, feasting, fellowshipping. They're like, a week's not enough. They do a whole another week. Look at verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests, the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place. To heaven. So now, full blown revival has broken out. The priests and the Levites, they're doing their job. It says at the end of verse 27, they're praying and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place to heaven. God is pleased, God is hearing their prayers. By the end of the second month, a temple in place, Passover being celebrated. He doesn't stop there. His reform continues. So far, this is all short-term kinds of things. The temple is open. They've celebrated Passover. Hezekiah wants to put things in place to make sure everything functions from now on out. So look what we read in verse 2 of chapter 31. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites according to their divisions, each man according to his service. The priests and Levites for burnt offerings and peace offerings to serve, to give thanks and to praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. The king also appointed a portion of his own possessions for the burnt offerings, for the morning and evening burnt offerings, the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths and the new moons and the set feasts, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests 
and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. Now, this is very, very important. Here's a king putting that temple service in order so that it will function long term. He divides all the priests, all the Levites, according to the law. He gives each one of them their responsibilities. The priests have their responsibilities with the sacrifices and maintaining the articles of furniture within the temple. The Levites have their responsibilities for regular upkeep and maintenance of the temple. He's divided them. He's staffed them. He's organized them. No doubt he put them into different shifts. He's put it in place for all the morning and evening sacrifices to begin. All of the feasts to begin. All of the celebrations to begin. And very important, look at verse 4. He commanded the people who dwelled in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. Here Hezekiah says, the tithing of the people must begin again. So that the Levites and the priests can do what they're supposed to do full time, fully supported, fully funded. That hadn't happened for a long time. Hezekiah called for that. And look at the response. I love it. Verse 5. As soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the children of Israel and Judah, who dwelled in the cities of Judah, brought the tithe of oxen and sheep, also the tithe of holy things which were consecrated to the Lord their God they laid in heaps. In the third month they began laying them in heaps, and they finished in the seventh month. Now this is incredible. Bring your support to the Lord's work. They began doing it in the third month. They're heaping it up at the temple all the way to the end of the seventh month. If you read the rest of the chapter, it says so much grain came in. So much grape and all of those resources came in. They actually had to build new storerooms right there at the temple complex to hold all of it. A temple system fully staffed fully funded. And all of this takes place in seven months. You know, we, need, we like to talk about the first 180 days of a president. Have you heard that? How did the president do in his first 180 days? What was he able to accomplish? Look what Hezekiah accomplished in his first 210 days. Seven months. Completely opened the temple, reinstituted the sacrifices, reinstituted Passover and all the other feasts, and got the priesthood fully functional again. That's awesome, isn't it? 
And of course, God was all behind that. Because as you take those steps to honor him, it's like this divine wind right at your back, making it all happen. That guy was a reformer. He was a great king. An incredible example. Look at verse 20, right here at the end of chapter 31. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with what? All his heart. So he prospered. This guy not only did all the work, he did it with the right heart. Here's a man who loved God. Who wanted to please God. Who wanted his nation to once again return to God. And so he did all of this with great passion. And look at the last three words of verse 21. What does it say? So he prospered. Okay. I want you to think back to the mess that he inherited. All of the fires. An economy falling apart. Military weakness. No doubt all kinds of broken policies within the kingdom. So he begins office and he has all these problems. And you wouldn't blame him if he decided, you know, I'm going to tackle the economy first. That's important. I'm going to go for that. Or you wouldn't blame him if he's a good king and he says, you know, we're going to work on the military. Or we're going to work on this policy. What did he tackle first? The temple. The heart. So... He prospered. He goes after what matters most. He goes after the spiritual condition of his nation. And do you know that God prospered him? All those other fires, all of those other problems, they sort of solved themselves. The Lord blessed him. There is an economic boom under the reign of King Hezekiah. You see it from evidence of their tithing. Heaps and heaps of harvest fruit God blessed the land with. He also became extremely strong in military. After all this is put in place, they begin to work on the military and they train up soldiers and they get all kinds of weapons. They even uh, fortified the city of Jerusalem. They add to the wall. They put more towers at the top of the wall. They become very strong. And in fact, 
Hezekiah was able to accomplish what still to this day is considered one of the greatest engineering feats in all of history. Check this out. That red line represents Hezekiah's tunnel. Here is the city wall of Jerusalem. It's a fortified city. Now, when you have a fortified city and an army surrounds your fortified city, you better have water inside. Okay? What the surrounding army will do is they will go all the way around and surround the city and they'll make sure that nobody can come out to any water source to try to starve them out, thirst them out. Well, Hezekiah, seeing that coming, built a tunnel underground at the Gihon Spring and brought it inside the city walls at the Pool of Siloam. That tunnel is 1,777 feet long, about a third of a mile. It was dug 30 feet underground through pure bedrock. That tunnel was dug consistently at a 6% gradient so that the water would flow into the Pool of Siloam, not overwhelm it. It was something that they can manage. And here's the thing. This is what's incredible. A team began there with pickaxes and a team began there with pickaxes. And they began to dig until they met in the middle. No radar, no dynamite, Incredible feat. And then after they dug that tunnel, they covered the Gihon Spring. So any enemy that might come and surround, they would know. And they had water in their city. Now, folks, Hezekiah's tunnel, and maybe you could turn the lights down a little bit, Andy. Hezekiah's tunnel was found in 1880. You can walk through it. It's there. It really happened. Here's a group walking through Hezekiah's tunnel. And by the way, I did this. When you do this, um, they give you a candle. And they start you at one end. And you hope the candle doesn't go out before you get to the other end. And I got to tell you, man. It's pretty scary. It's, it's very constrained. It's very narrow. Sometimes you have to duck. And you're wading in water. Because the water still flows. So we had a group in 2005 on our last Israel tour. We went in, and, and this is like a kind of a shot when you first go in. And there you go with your, your candle. I actually found a clip on YouTube of a recent tour just to give you an idea. I hope you can see it.
lights back on. I want to see a, sh a show of hands. How many of you would do that? A lot of you won't, wouldn't. Our tour group, just a few of us went. And because, uh, I mean, you go through this, this tunnel and you're holding nothing but a candle. And uh, it's quite an experience. But I'll tell you what, to travel through a tunnel that was constructed under King Hezekiah in 700 B.C. And still to this day, a marvel of an engineering feat. It's incredible. Now, when you go through that tunnel, you get to the point where they met. And they actually inscribed a message right there where they met. A little plaster was made of it. You can find it in the Instanpol Archaeological Museum. But when they met, it certainly, it just simply describes the day. It says in English, the day of the breach. This is the record of how the tunnel was breached. While the excavators were wielding their pickaxes, each man toward his co-worker, and while there were yet three cubits for the breach, a voice was heard, each man calling to his co-worker, because there was a cavity in the rock from the south to the north. So on the day of the breach, the excavator struck each man to meet his co-worker, pickaxe against pickaxe. Then the water flowed from the spring to the pool, a distance of 1,200 cubits. 100 cubits was the height of the rock above the heads of the excavators. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? Here's a king who focused all of his initial energy on the temple, on what God would want. And look at the things that he was able to do Look at the way that he's prospered. That tunnel was a blessing from God because the Assyrian Empire would come to attack Hezekiah and Jerusalem. Remember I told you that under Ahaz... Judah had become a vassal state, had to give tribute to the Assyrians. Well, Hezekiah stopped paying the taxes year one. He said, no more tribute. We're going to stand our ground. Well, eventually, the Assyrians came. Look at verse 1 of chapter 32. After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. Now, I want you to notice the chronology there. I find that interesting. It says, after these deeds of what? After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib. See, now, 
He set his heart on God. He got moving and he was faithful. And you know what happens when you do that? You wake up the enemy. When you get busy and when you decide, I'm going to set my house in order. I'm going to follow the Lord. God will bless. There will be a the divine wind, but it also wakes up the enemy. And so here comes Sennacherib. Now remember, he is the king of the world power at that time, the Assyrian Empire. They are the kingdom that has already taken into captive the northern kingdom of Israel. They've gobbled up every other nation. This guy was brutal. This guy slaughtered people. This guy tortured people. He comes into Judah. Look at verse 2. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders, and I love it, and his commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs in the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water. I love that. They went out and stopped all the water sources outside of their city. So when they came to besiege the city, they couldn't find any water and they have their own secret water. Right? Brilliant. Brilliant. Verse 5 says, And he strengthened himself, built up all the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers, and built another wall outside. Also, he repealed, repaired the Milo in the city of David and made weapons and shields in abundance. Then he set military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate and gave them encouragement saying, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that was with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord, our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hmm. Sennacherib came with well over 200,000 soldiers. Greatly outnumbered all of the men in Jerusalem. Surrounded their city. You read this chapter, and he engages in psychological warfare against the Jews. To all of the Jews that are standing on the wall around Jerusalem, he calls out, uh, is your God going to help you? We're the kingdom that's beat all the other gods. They write a letter to Hezekiah that makes its way inside. And in the letter, deriding the God of Israel. Making fun of the God of Israel. Promising them destruction. Really scary. What does Hezekiah do? Look at verse 20. Now because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried out to heaven. I love this picture. There's the letter of Sennacherib. There's the taunt of the enemy. There's all the fear 
Hezekiah goes into the temple with Isaiah, the prophet. By the way, aren't you glad there was a temple to go into? There was. There was a sanctuary for him. And they just spread that letter out before the Lord. And they prayed. God, deliver us. And they got word from the Lord that everything would be taken care of and everything was. Look at verse 21. Then the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader and captain in the camp of the king of Syria. So he returned what? Shame-faced to his own land. And when he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword there. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. The book of Second Kings gives us more information. One angel on one night killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and mighty men of war. Now that, listen, that's one angel. Think of how many angels God has. I believe we all have a guardian angel. I think my sons each have two guardian angels. But think of how powerful. So the rest of the people wake up the next morning and they look and just a bunch of corpses. They get up, they flee. Sennacherib flees. He goes back to his kingdom with his tail between his legs. He ends up going into the throne room of his pagan god where he's assassinated by two of his sons who take over the kingdom. Great king. Great king. You know, there's a verse in the New Testament that I think King Hezekiah's life illustrates. And it's this one. How many of you know that verse? Matthew 6, 33. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. That's what Hezekiah did. He became king and he sought first the Lord. And God blessed him. And by the way, Hezekiah was not a perfect king. The Bible does record a couple of his failures. But if you go back and you study it, after every failure, he repents. He repents. And really, for his whole reign, God blessed him. We need to apply this principle to our lives as individual Christians.
my brother and sister in Christ. My friend, listen. Put God first in your life. Seek him. And do it like Hezekiah. With all your heart. With your passion. Put all that first energy into serving him. And he's going to take care of the rest. You trust him with that. There may be some of you here tonight and you need reform. Maybe there's an area in your life that's broken. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a ministry that you're a part of. Maybe it's a family issue. Maybe it's a financial issue in your life. Here's my encouragement to you tonight. Be like Hezekiah. Day one, first thing tomorrow morning. Set your life in order. Set your house in order. Determine that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be number one in your life. You follow his commandments for you. You seek him. You give him full loyalty. Follow him. Get back in church. Get back to the, the, the celebrations of the church. Get back into fellowship. Take steps in your life to make it a long-term change, not just a short-term. You do that. And you will be surprised how quickly God changes everything. You will be surprised at how God takes those messes And heals them. Trust him with that. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, what an example. You know, I think of Hezekiah and how he might have felt when he took over. Lord, how overwhelmed he must have been. And how easy it would have been to give attention to all these other problems in life. And Lord, we're so much like that. We, we give our attention to all these surface level issues. Lord, it's so wonderful to see how he decided to focus on what matters most. And Lord, how you moved in his life, moved in his kingdom, protected him, blessed him. Father, I pray that we would be Christians who are completely, totally centered on you, that you truly, that would be the desire of our heart, that we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. 
Lord, I pray if there are those who have strayed from that, that tonight they would come back. They would rededicate their lives to you. And Lord, I pray that this is something we would be tenacious about. We would stick with. Be number one in our lives, Lord, every single day, in every area of our life. Come what may. In Jesus' name, I ask this. Amen.